Welcome back to the shores of the Bohicket River on beautiful Wadmala Island, South Carolina, and our view from the bridge. I'm your host, Rick Jones, captain of Fishbait Marketing. We have another big show today with part two from our guest angler, Jack Birch. Jack is such a brilliant guy, and we're delighted to have him return for another session today. But firstly, let's talk a little bit about the next logical step in sponsorship after fit. And for sponsorship salespeople, that's targeting. Here's an example of targeting from a project I worked on fairly recently, the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta, Georgia. When I joined the sales team there, I quickly determined that we needed a specific targeting model with a level of financial commitment uh, somewhat predetermined in my modeling. Um, So I I drew a triangle, and on each point of the triangle, um, I put a different criteria with a different amount of money connected to it. Uh, The first triangle was pretty clear. No one was going to invest in the College Football Hall of Fame unless they already had an investment in college football. Um, And so we started with those companies, and there are a lot of them, uh, that actually have already made a commitment uh, to being engaged and involved with uh, college football. We felt like the, the Hall of Fame was the icing on the cake, or maybe even was the sprinkles on the icing on the cake, and certainly not the cake itself. So that was point number one. Point number two on the triangle was a company that, again, was uh, already invested in college football, but was headquartered in Atlanta. That's where the Hall of Fame was going to be. Uh, and that was a pretty easy list, too. You had companies like the Home Depot, UPS, Coca-Cola. AT&T actually had their mobile unit headquartered in Atlanta. And most importantly, Chick-fil-A. Now, Chick-fil-A was already involved in the hall before I got there. They had made the commitment to be the presenting sponsor of an, a fan engagement component of the hall. And later, they became actually the title sponsor of the hall itself. So those were two points. And then the third point was equally critical, and that was the company uh, that was engaged in college football had a senior executive that was very committed to this project. Um, And those were people like Steve Robinson at at Chick-fil-A or Sharon Byers, who at that time was at Coca-Cola, who's now at the American Cancer Society, uh, and Percy Vaughn with uh, Kia. So you had to have individuals. And each of those points on the triangle were worth X number of dollars. And and it turned out to be exactly the way we had drawn it up on the whiteboard. Our top tier sponsors became Chick-fil-A, AT&T, Coca-Cola, and Kia. All people that were headquartered in Atlanta uh, had a commitment to college football and had a senior executive that was engaged. The second tier were people like the Home Depot, UPS, and Regents Bank. Regents Bank had a major commitment to college football and a senior executive very interested in the project, but they're not headquartered in Atlanta. They're headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama. And then our third tier sponsors were people like Southwest Airlines, Under Armour, Georgia Pacific, and Piedmont Hospital. Uh, I like building targeting models and writing them down on a whiteboard. I'm an old basketball coach, and I like to to see things visually before I go out and actually sell them. And, And by doing that, I not only identify who I want to talk to, but why I am specifically targeting those particular companies. 
Obviously, it starts with all the things we previously discussed about perfect fit. Uh, things like audience and objectives and finances and timing. And these all determine what I call your who's, who you're going to chase. When I get out and start looking at who my who's are, it's kind of a Dr. Seuss moment, um, I start with categories and category management. For example, if I'm going to go try to find an automotive sponsor for something, I look at the automotive segments. Now, I don't treat all automotives the same. I don't treat trucks the same as I do luxury vehicles or as I do the everyday vehicles. But let's say that I'm after luxury vehicles for a particular property. Then I'm going to be looking at Mercedes and BMW and Lexus and Infiniti and Acura and Audi. And so I'm going to go deep and wide within the category. I also strongly believe in fishing where others don't fish. Um, I have a a creek uh, where I live, Long Creek, off the Bohicket River, and I catch a significant amount of crabs in my trap because there's nobody else putting crab traps in my creek. Same thing with prospects. Do you go fish where other people aren't fishing? Let's take the QSR category, for example. Everybody thinks about McDonald's or Wendy's or Burger King, and those are great, but do you also think about brands like Crystal or uh, Cookout uh, or others like that? So I'm, I'm constantly looking for new categories and or new prospects within a category. Um, Finally, I cannot overstress the people part of sales. I've been, in, I've been doing this for a long, long time, and I'm here to tell you that I've never sold anything to a corporation. I've sold it to a human being. Uh, corporations don't buy anything. People do. And so I'm really, really big on what I call people management. Um, you, you can today find out almost anything you need to know about decision makers by going to LinkedIn. LinkedIn is just a wealth of information on business executives, where they went to school, what they like, what their biases are, what their family situations are, where they've been before. Uh, It's a great place to start. Uh, I'm um, fanatical about uh, a thing called the McKay 66 system. One of my uh, personal heroes is a guy named Harvey McKay. Harvey McKay is from Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's in his 90s now. Uh, he was a, an envelope salesman. He, he owned a company that made envelopes. And one of the neat things about envelopes is you only use it once <laughs> and then you throw it away. Um, but Harvey wrote a book several years ago called Swim with the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive. And then later wrote a few other books. But in his first book, he talked about his sales system called the McKay 66. And it's simply 66 questions he tries to answer for each prospect that he has where they're from, where they went to school, do they have a spouse, what's his or her name if they have a spouse, do they have children, what are the ages of the children, what are their interests. Um, And so it's a great way of building a database around people. Um, Now that sounds kind of big brotherish, but I've always felt that the key to selling anything is superior information. And the more information you have on people, the more you're going to be able to find things that appeal to them. There are other folks, though, you have to get to before sometimes you can get to the decision maker. Uh, These are called gatekeepers. A lot of senior executives have someone that protects his or her calendar. And so you've got to be able to suck up to or or, uh, persuade those gatekeepers 
uh, to let you actually in. And, and what I try to do is not waste anybody's time. I try to explain what I'm there to talk about. And if that person feels like it makes sense, then potentially I'll get a meeting. But the real key for me is what I call influencers. Um, I rarely, if ever, cold call anybody. Uh, because they don't know who Rick Jones is. And if they do, they probably don't care. Uh, I'm looking for someone that knows them to call them and give me the lead in with some sort of credibility that says, look, Rick won't waste your time. Uh, it'll be a, a very valuable 30 minutes for you. I, I'd encourage you to take the meeting. And that's how I usually get meetings. Because ultimately in selling something, you have to get to the person that can tell you both yes or no. A lot of times you get in an organization and you're at a level that the person can only tell you no but can't tell you yes. And so in order to be successful, you got to get to the yes person. Now, what are some of the key elements for you in the sales credibility process? Well, the first thing is if you're selling a property, what is the status and credibility of that property? Is it something that really truly is valuable and prestigious? If you're with an agency, and I'm with an agency, does your agency have any status or credibility? Secondly, what's your personal status? What's your personal credibility? Do they know you? Are you someone that they believe they can trust? Are you someone they believe that will bring value to them? Uh, I'm also a big believer that largely you will sell to people within your own generation. And so I'm 65 years old. What do I know about selling a 22-year-old Hispanic woman a sponsorship? Probably little to none. Uh, and so I try to take people of that generation to those meetings with me so that there is credibility and there's a point of reference that they realize that there's someone there in their peer group uh, that's going to be helping them through the process. I think your personality is a big part of how you sell. Now, I don't think you can change who you are. You don't take stripes off a zebra, but uh, I really believe to be effective in, um, in selling, you need to be a little bit charming. Uh, you need to be at ease. You need to put other people at ease. And you need to be persistent without being a pain. And I'm a big believer in that. Can you be persistent without being a pain? If someone says, hey, get back to me in three weeks, then don't get back to them in two weeks. Get back to them in three weeks. Um, again, be persistent, but don't be a pain. Uh, also, what's your likability? I mean, do people like you? Uh, and do, more importantly, do people respect you? And do they respect you because you don't waste their time? Um, and finally, probably the most important question you have to ask, ask yourself is this. Are you perceived as someone that's solutions-oriented? It is about them and not about you. Hey, I'd like to get up this morning and find a million dollars in my car. Everybody would. But that's value to me, not necessarily valuable to the person that gave me the million dollars. And so you always need to be focused on, am I providing value? Am I providing a solution, a potential solution to this particular prospect? So soon we're going to come back and talk a little bit more depth about this uh, and talk about how to be even more solutions oriented. Now it's time for today's Tuesday tip. The two most important words in the English language are thank you. When was the last time you called up someone who has helped you along the way just to say thank you? 
I don't always succeed, but I try to tell my staff regularly how much I appreciate what they do and to say thank you for anything and everything they do. It doesn't cost any money to say thanks and very little time either. But it shows two things. Firstly, it shows you're paying attention to others. And secondly, it shows that you appreciate what they do. Find time today to say thanks to someone who's making a difference in your business or making a difference in your life. It's now time for our guest angler. Last week's guest angler was so darn good that we invited him back today for round two. It's Jack Birch of Sponsorship Solved. Hey, Jack, welcome back to From the Bridge. Thank you, sir. You know, we started talking last week about why sponsorship works, and I know you have a, a whole litany of reasons why it works. Let, let's talk about some of those uh, other reasons. Well, we talked about the first one, which, which, you know, technically why it works is called positioning authenticity, but what it does for the clients, what it does for the brand is it teaches their difference. You use an analogy in the game to teach your fans what makes that brand better and different. The, the second point on the eight point compass is called tell their story. And some years back I was sitting with no CMO level marketers. And this idea just kept coming up again and again and again. And the idea was simple. It was, we want to tell our story. We want to dimensionalize our story. So the inputs are on the compass are, you need to know their history. You need to know their brand personality. Um, and you need to know their values. And like a person, if I knew your history, your values, your personality, I could begin to tell your story and all we're doing is using um, the image transference, one of the reasons sponsorship works, the integration, one of the reasons sponsorship works, as as part of the storytelling devices, again, to dimensionalize or tell the brand's story. Well, you 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 know, it's interesting, you're uh, you know my story and you're still willing to be a guest angler. Uh uh, yeah, yeah. It reminds me there was a, there was a there was a great line in a Woody Allen movie, uh, Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy, which was a playoff of Midsummer Night's Dream. And the Tony Roberts character said uh, one of my favorite lines ever. He said, "Trust me, you know me. Trust me anyway." <laughs> right. Stop to think about it. Exactly. <laughs> so that's two. You know, teach and tell are the first two. The third is sell. And one of the reasons sponsorship works is sales without debiting brand equity. And usually, so, so, you know, um, you go to some of these men's stores and it's buy one blazer, uh, take home rest of store for free. (laughs) They're sort of saying, Hey, since, since we don't have what people want, if you'll just come in the store and look at a blazer, you can have all the blazers that we have in here at your size. And people make fun of that, you know, um, and you can't wear that blazer as a, if I wore a blazer to a team and they saw the label in there, they say, Oh my God, Jack, I thought you were moderately successful. I I realized that a guy who just started in business might get three of those suits, but what are you doing? And so, they're sort of telegraphing. They're saying, since we don't have what people want, comma, 
buy one, get one free or 20% off or 50% off or whatever the sale is, you see. So, so brands are sending, I'd almost say, I hate to say this, but even a great company like Chevrolet said $500 back on a car, $1,000 back on a car. Uh, please take our employee discount, employee discount on a car. They, they might as well be advertising since nobody wants a Chevrolet anymore, comma. So w- w- what we try to do with the sponsorship is is to celebrate something. Ah, the beginning of the year. Ah, the making of the playoffs. Ah, the Olympics. You know, I saw research that said if you use your Visa card, we'll – set aside some of the money to send parents to see their kids in the Olympics who otherwise couldn't afford it. Well, that actually increased their brand equity. You see? So they taught their difference everywhere you want to be like the Olympics. Wow. Worldwide. They told their story, image transference. They had a big image transference problem actually with American express at the time. Visa was kind of a trailer park card, uh, American express. Wow. The centurion had all the image, but they used the image transference of the Olympics in telling their story. And they, drove usage, sold their stuff without debiting brand equity, which takes us to, you know, grow your profits, loyalty. I I don't think our so-called premium sellers in the business really understand that they, they have premium, but they, what they sell is loyalty and loyalty is very tied to profits. Um, There was a great book written by a guy named Fred Reichfeld called the loyalty effect. And he has a lot of figures in there that talk about keeping clients, keeping employees, uh, and, and the brands that are most lo- have the most customer loyalty in their category are by far the most profitable. So they should really be drawing a direct line to profitability and not talking about marble countertops in suites. You know, I think, no, 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 you're not a kitchen designer. You're a, you're a loyalty expert, you see. And, so loyalty is one of the reasons sponsorship works. Um, you, know, you know, you mentioned uh, American Express and Visa. Jim Robinson was the – he was in Atlanta, and he was the CEO of American Express at the time. The uh, Georgia State's business school is the Jim Robinson School of Business. But he admitted in his uh, autobiography that the single biggest mistake he ever made professionally was allowing Visa to have the Olympics. Look at that. Yeah. That is amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, he put it in writing. He said, I screwed up. We had been the sponsor of the 84 games in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, we we turned it down. Oh, my God. And Visa used it to kick our ass. (laughs) Wow. Hey, Rick, get this. So one time Harlan was flying out to the West Coast, you know, for our little office in Darien, and he was going to see a guy named John Bennett, who was their VP of marketing. Yeah. John Bennett, pop, 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 pop. His name would come across the Visa card in the ads. And I said to Harlan, hey, ask John Bennett. First of all, it got announced. He signed this multi-million dollar deal with the Olympics, which would have just freaked me out personally. You know, to spend millions of dollars of a company's money on what I thought was a gamble like that. And I said to Harlan, ask him how he felt, you know. Dumbass. Anyway, Harlan comes home from the trip. You know, I said, hey, you know, of course, I, 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 he never does what I ask him to do. And right so. So – I said, did you ask John Bennett how he felt after he signed the Olympic deal? And get this. He said, yeah, I did. I said, you you did? (laughs) What did he say? And this is what John Bennett said. I literally floated home. I'm quoting him. I literally floated home. And John Bennett, who, who, who is a total unknown as far as I know. A total unknown. I don't know where he is. I've never met him. But hey, John. If you're listening, oh, 
you are spectacular. Because, Rick, he must have known. You've got Robinson writing, we made a, we, this is the biggest marketing mistake we ever made. You have Bennett saying, oh, I'm sorry, did I drop $30 million? Who cares? I'm literally floating home. It's like it's over. I've got these you know, guys now. Yeah, it, it is amazing. But I, I, I'll tell you another story. I, I had a chance to hear a panel with John Bennett on the panel. Oh, you did? Versus, versus Jerry Welsh, who at that time was running sponsorships at American Express. And, and of course, you know, Visa had the campaign that they don't take American Express. It was contractually in the Olympic agreement that they don't take American Express. And, and, uh, and then Visa came in. I mean, American Express came in, obviously, and almost created ambush marketing. And I remember that John Bennett started his, his um, comments by opening the Bible and saying, you know, we know God was a sports fan because the the first line of the Bible is in the big inning and, and, and everybody laughed. And then he turned to the 10 commandments and said, thou shalt not steal. And, and he kind of handed the baton to Jerry and, and Jerry said, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm in marketing and this ain't church. <laughs> <laughs> and then they went off on one another. It was, it was great. It was one of the great days of my life to hear that. Yeah. So anyway, he, you know, he somehow knew he was killing it. Um, you know, he took the Olympic rings again. Another one of the reasons sponsorship works is, is, um, is called tactical amplification. You, you take the logo and you put it on your, well, he had it on his business cards. He had it on his advertising. He had it on his television commercials. He, he, he enjoyed, he, he, he associated with something as classy as the Olympics and he made all his other, other advertising work harder. If you examine ads with and without the logo, the people who are being asked say, Oh, well, that's a higher quality product. The ads with the logo. So not only are you not only are you uh, you're making all your other communications more effective when you properly use the logo of your partnerships. Jack, talk a little bit about it. It may be coming up in one, one of the points on the compass, but I've found, especially working in the college sports ranks and in working in March Madness, that it amazes me when people will pay, you know, millions of dollars to be associated with the men's basketball tournament and then just run their same old commercials that have absolutely nothing to do with college basketball or the audience versus those that do custom creative that seems to really resonate better with, with consumers. Unexplainable. Unexplainable. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, forgive me, General Motors, you know, you guys know a lot more than me. But, you know, I remember watching it some years ago when Pontiac built excitement and they ran the same Pontiac ad. I mean, hundreds of times, Rick. Yeah. When when research shows that, like, you like the brand more the first time you see it, the second time up till five at six, you start to get a little bit annoyed by it. You know, yeah, this is what Geico does so well. They will change the way they say 15 minutes can save you 15 percent so many times that you'll actually, you know, you'll say, no, 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 honey, hunt, one, one second, one second. I got to watch this commercial. It's a, it's, a, it's a new Geico commercial. I can't miss it. <laughs> uh, you know, is that a cartoon with the lizards in London? I think he's British. So they <clears throat> I, I thought he was Australian. So anyway, the. The they do a really good job of that. And I did not think that the Pontiac guys or I don't think that the folks that are leveraging that sort of stuff, it just takes. Well, I don't think you'll ever see it again, Rick, actually. I, I think you're going to see now that everybody is used to seeing uh, news on video, almost semi live. I think you're going to see a lot of 
created commercials as it as the game goes along. Well, you should, yeah. I mean, especially if you have the positioning of uh, <clears throat> of excitement or performance, and then you have March Madness that delivers it in every game. I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah. it's excitement. Yeah. On dude, say the name. Get the feel, get feeling placement. Get excite. Get excitement. You know, have the kid from Valpo get like the leaning three point boom. Say the word. Say your name, Pontiac. Excitement, Pontiac. Excitement, Pontiac. After a while, you can walk down the street and say, "Hey, excitement!" Somebody says, "Pontiac." They don't even know, right? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, another is inspire your community. It's the idea that we have a stage. We have nineteen thousand people. We you can lift the level of what you're doing in the community. Um, it inspires the community. Um, again, to use Visa and American Express, beat your competition is on the compass. It's they don't take American Express. So not only is Visa saying, hey, it's, this is a competitive advantage for us. It's something that we have that they don't have. Everybody can do print. Everybody can do radio. Everybody can do outdoor. But Visa had has the Olympics, um, you know, exclusively. So they can have something to leverage that the other brands can't match. And so so to work your way around, teach, tell, sell, grow, improve, inspire, beat. And the last one is prove, which is that, you know, all these things on the compass are measurable via survey test and control. And they're they're relatively easy to measure. And I think what the industry seems to not understand is, you know, not how to measure. They say, how do you measure sponsorship? I'm like, all right, well, this is going to be uninspiring, but survey, test, and control. Um, but what to measure, they don't know. You know, Measure positioning authenticity. Measure um, how many people can match up your personality attributes via the story you're telling. Measure, oh my God, measure tactical amplification for sure. You know, Measure image transference. So and, and those are all easy things to do. So that's that's what that looks like. And so basically, you know, I don't so much teach sales as I teach um, people that are selling stuff, wh- why what they're selling works. And so we go from feeling like media salespeople, I think, to feeling like campaign designers um, and business people, you know. And when you feel like a campaign designer and a business person, I think that the clients treat you with a lot more respect and they see that you're helping them and they see how you're helping them and you're really bringing something to the party as an expert in our business. And I think that's what, that's what my clients tend to enjoy the most. Uh, it makes them a lot more money, but I think they enjoy the way they feel in the room, trying to help the client succeed and knowing how to do that. And they bring value every time they have a meeting, even if someone doesn't actually buy, you know, a transaction that they're kind of the invited guest that says, you know, you brought value to me. I can't buy it today for whatever reason, but I can't wait for you to come back in here and show me something else. You know, it changes the whole, you know, the whole conversation. I mean, I think you know that better than anybody. You know, if you're listening, Rick is just so good at taking a calculated, intelligent risk to try to challenge might not be the right word, Rick, but what would you call it when you say to a client, well, I don't like what you're doing here. Like, what, what are you doing? when you do that? Well, I think you're challenging the status quo a little bit. You know, um, th- there was an old ad ex- executive in, in, uh, at the Richards Group, um, who, 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 and his staff said um, you would come present an idea to him before you presented it to a, to a client. And 
he, he had a very uncomfortable chair. They called it a grommet. It would kind of penetrate penetrate your rear end, and you waited for, you know, for for him to say, you know, whether it was good or not. And his idea was, if it didn't make you nervous, if it didn't make you sweat, uh, if it didn't make you a little uneasy, then it's not a very big idea, you know. But but let's face it, Jack. There are very 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 few people that are risk takers. Uh, most people that I deal with are why people. It's rare to find a why not person. Uh, Mava Heffler was our client at MasterCard for years, and and she she was just a why not. I mean, she just had she was a joy to work with because um, she liked risky things. She liked things that made other people nervous because she knew it was going to resonate differently in the marketplace, and and it, and it's it's it does. But clients but you know don't get fired for doing regular stuff. They get fired for taking a risk and having it backfire. And you can't, you know, nobody bats a thousand. So if you do ten great things, one of them is going to make you look bad. You're fired. Yeah, uh, you know, the guy that started the Pepsi Challenge was a junior brand manager in Dallas, Texas, where. Uh, Uh, Pepsi had about a two share, you know, Coke and Dr. Pepper owned Dallas. And so he had nothing to lose. I mean, he just had nothing to lose. So he figured out, let me do this. Let me serve a hot, flat, uh, you know, day old Coca-Cola and ice cold, just open Pepsi. And, And let me see who they prefer. Well, it was so successful that the guy ended up being the CEO of the PepsiCo company. I mean, I mean, so... Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, out of desperation comes uh, innovation. Uh, when you've got nothing to lose, then you're willing to do things. And I think that's a, a point that we all ought to learn from. People feel like if I do this, what is the downside? They start with the downside and they don't start with the upside. Um, you know, I, I know guys that never would ask out good looking girls. And, and then you figured out the good-looking girls were so intimidating, nobody asked them out. And so they were like, oh, you're asking me to the prom? Yes. <laughs> and you're like, uh, it's me, right? I, I mean, I'm asking you. Not, not the quarterback. I'm asking you. I know, but nobody else asked me, so I'll go with you. I may dance with somebody else, damn it, but I'm going with you. You know, and so it, – it, but, it, but I see in business it's the same way. I mean, it's like they live in their cubes and they hope nobody notices and they hope they do just enough to get by. God, I would hate to waste my life on just trying to get by versus being great. And so I try to take ideas in there that I think will make them great. And if they don't like them, then I'll find hopefully somebody that will. Well, look, what I see when I watch you is that you are trying to help them. (laughs) that's what's going on and they will forgive you if the challenge you're, you're not trying to challenge them for your sake. You're saying to the clients, okay, well, you're, if you're asking that question and you're asking me to tell you what I really think about this, I'm going to really tell you. But what, what carries the day from my point of view is your intentions are about them. Yeah, and I don't think you can fake that. Uh, I do think there are a couple of advantages to being from the South. Uh, I, I, you know, when I lived in London those years, um, I didn't come across as the ugly American because they kind of had a love affair in England and in, on the continent for those from the South. You talk funny. Uh, but also Southerners tell stories. 
and and I try to tell a story in any sales presentation that I make, and I think that resonates. It's a little non-threatening that you can get the point across. My mama was a really fine Southern Baptist lady, but she had a great saying. She said, you know, honey, sometimes you have to tell people to go to hell and make them look forward to the trip. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think that's what a good salesperson does. You, 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 you raise the issue, you know, like, Dude, you need to do this, but you need to do it in, I think, in a in kind of a non a non threatening way. So, so you work with a lot of young people, obviously, at these professional teams. What what kind of talk about how you create context around the compass and around the process for for, for younger people? Well, you know, my first thought is I don't know, but my second thought is that you know we usually start out by. Uh, collecting all the questions. Well, not all, but at least one question from each person in the room about sponsorship, the answer to which would, you know, most immediately help them have more fun and make more money at work, you know, have more fun and help a client. What question, if I answered for you right now, would make this whole day more than worthwhile? Something you've always wanted to know, something that would immediately make you feel better about what you're doing and help a client, help the team, help yourself. Um, and they, boy, they, they, I give them a couple minutes. They write stuff down. They come to the board, they write their name down, they write their question down. So, so one of the things, and this is, you know, as much to laziness as like send us an agenda, you know, I'm like, I don't have one. So, and this, but it turns out that this is the agenda. You know, I see, I saw Scott O'Neill do it several times with big groups of people. It was like, make your own agenda kind of thing. And it always turned out that the agenda that he had ahead of time in his mind would come up anyway, except it really looked like, um, he was making it for them, you know, and in, invariably they'll ask a question two, five, seven, ten, 10, you know, that bring up something that you're, you're going to have to really give some context to. So in the context, for example, of somebody saying, well, how do you measure sponsorship? You know, and somebody invariably asks something like that. Our clients want to measure sponsorship. You know, how do we do it? I said, okay, well, hell, um, I'm going to answer that now, but you know, it's survey test and control. And, but please, you know, uh, but but in order to, oh, well, that's going to open up. I mean, you got to go back and tell them why sponsorship works. See, so, so even if, even if nobody's asking why sponsorship works and only one guy has ever written that question up there. Tim Zulowski from the Atlanta Falcons wrote, well, why does sponsorship work on the board? I'm like, Hey, who wrote this? So, and, and he's their chief revenue officer now back then he was maybe their VP of sponsorship. You know, he's great. But, um, that's one, I think what, 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 what I have fallen into doing is to, Try to understand where they are now. Don't don't try to teach them anything. I guess I'd say, just try to see where they are now, and then answer that question and see if that doesn't spark another question. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, you become more of a guide that says on the path, the trail, uh, the career trail, the, the the trail of whatever your job is now. I'm determining where you are on that path and I'm just going to try to get you down the path. Yeah. The next spot on the trail versus somebody that comes in and says, Oh, you got to do all this. And that's just so overwhelming. I think that's, that's very interesting. It's like saying it's, you know, it's like Sir Isaac Newton saying I invented calculus. Calculus is amazing. Here's calculus. 
and all the kids are in fifth grade. (laughs) So I've gone back and made like a checklist and said, you're not going to, you don't get to learn this next thing until you've learned this thing, until you've demonstrated that you've learned this thing and you don't get to learn this. And that's really makes it safe for them. They don't think when they, when they see me saying positioning is this and brand equity is this and teacher difference. They're like, Oh my God. Okay. No. I mean, that's great. Don't get me wrong. It's great. I'm glad it works. But what, what can, what can I, what, what, what'd you say? And we can't, I can't expect them. I did, by the way, I did fully expect them for years to walk into the client and demonstrate their newfound fabulous expertise. But it only happened maybe one in a hundred times. And I couldn't figure that out for the longest time. I was thinking, what's wrong with them? You know, but of course, <laughs> I should have been thinking more like, what's wrong with me? Yeah, yeah. And then you, and then you, from that point, you started becoming their, their guide, their personal guide. It became about them, not about you. And, and, but you have applied things that you've learned along the way. I want to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, I'm a big believer that, that I've learned more from getting my butt kicked than I have from all the successes in the world. You you had a cup of coffee running Bob's Wolf's agency in Boston at one time. You know, what was the biggest lesson you learned from that experience? I was a scared loser, you know. I you know, really Rick, I just did not God. I didn't communicate with my people well enough. I didn't make changes in people and in philosophy that I felt like I, I knew to do and was necessary to do. I just didn't have guts. You know, it takes a lot of guts to have people reporting to you. And I really grew in my respect for having that done because it's just constant. You know, when they came to me with problems, I tried to solve their problem. And it made them weaker and weaker, not better and better. They just said, well, why bother? Jack's gonna, just going to try to solve. He's not going to. So so I think if I had to do it again, I would I would make sure that my job was more to show them how to solve the client's problems and their own problems and not to do it for them. I was too interested in doing it for them, saying, see, isn't that great? Aren't I great? Some version of that. You know, but what a great learning for what you do now, which is taking people at different skill sets and different places along the journey. Had you not had that journey and that that real eye opener, um, I don't think you would be the as effective as you are today. And you are extremely effective with you know so many people that you've helped them understand, hey, a where they are in the journey and what is the next step, and then the next step and the next step. But I think until you Again, until you've been there and walked on the trail and realized, man, I should have gone right, I went left, or man, or I should have gone with other people, or I should have done this or done that, I, I don't think it, it makes sense. Listen, we need to wrap up. I want you to give me any final words of wisdom for those out there listening that actually have to try to sell sponsorships besides don't do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were joking, like study finance. Um, wow. Well, I, my, 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 I think the, the long-term calling at two levels is, is first, 
you know, be the see yourself as a creative director uh, at an advertising agency. In other words, learn the marketing business, read the books about marketing, study campaigns, see how you're, you 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 have assets, but see how you can put the assets to work for them to tell their story, teach their difference, sell their stuff, uh, grow their profits. You know, stay on the compass and. And develop into being sort of someone like you who is sort of their adjunct creative director using the tools of sponsorship. That's that's so level one is sell media. Basically, hey, we have radio. Hey, we have social. Hey, we have signage. Terrible. OK, honorable, really, but not exactly exceedingly valuable. And then after you feel like, oh, I can design campaigns, start reading their annual report. Start going to investor relations and listening to the CEO uh, talk to the guys at Piper Jaffray, have it re- recording it, showing you the boards. He's going to or she's going to give you the business objectives. And the last thing, the last stage for you is to is to see the business objectives and connect them to the things that you can help them solve or at least mitigate. And now you are you you have the greatest job in the world. You work in sports. You you control your living, but which a salesperson can do uh, through smarts and hard work. And you're the creative director at an advertising agency and you're sort of a business consultant like at McKinsey. And you're also worth a lot. It's a very rare and valuable skill and you can be really proud of it. Thanks, Jack. We'll, We'll need to have you back again soon. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the brilliant Jack Birch of Sponsorship Solved. Now it's time again for On the Road with Rick. On last week's show, Jack Birch mentioned an old barbecue place in Atlanta that I had taken him called Harold's Barbecue. Harold's was uh, located down by the Federal Penitentiary on, uh, on Boulevard Avenue. Unfortunately, it's now closed. But in that era, they had an amazing crackling cornbread. The cracklings are pig skin that is placed in the cornbread batter. Um, now, cornbread is not sweet. Cake is sweet. If I wanted sweet cornbread, I'd order cake. Cornbread is salty. And the very best cornbread ever is here in Charleston, South Carolina at Husk. It's served in its own individual iron skillet. So when they bring it to the table, it's just for you. You don't have to share it with anybody. If they want their own cornbread, they can order it. Husk cornbread is hot, crusty, salty, and corny in the very best sense of that word. Husk has amazing other dishes, but you have to have the cornbread. And for dessert, order another cornbread. So that's all for today. Let us know how we're doing. You can reach me at my email address, rick at fishbaitmarketing.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of From the Bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, From the Bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory.
time on condition. Leave my troubles behind. 